Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning again. Those of you in person and online, it's good, good to be together. Um, today we're going to talk about our senses. Um, and I didn't know this. I had to do a bunch of research because this isn't the stuff that I know. But do you know Aristotle was the one who named five senses for people? Aristotle was the one who said we have five senses. Science has progressed a long ways in the last 2,500 years. And we now, scientists now say that we have more than five senses. Most scientists say we have something between nine and over 50 senses, depending on which scientists you're talking to and how they're categorizing the senses. Aristotle was the one who said it was sight, taste, touch, smell, and I'm forgetting one. Hearing, thank you. That's the one I would forget, huh? But scientists today say add a whole bunch of senses, things like uh, proprioception, which is our sense of our limbs, or equilibrioception, which is our sense of balance, our sense of pain, our sense of hunger, our sense of direction, our sense of time. These are all ways that we perceive the world um, and then take it in and make sense of it. Plus, if, like, if you think about the things that make life worth living, our sense of beauty, our sense of love, these are different ways that we perceive the world and make sense of it. Sense of humor. Um, and Sometimes we discover or learn more about these senses when they're not working properly. Uh, um, Grace and I were talking about this this week, and she was like, sometimes my migraines uh, disrupt her ability to uh, perceive her own limbs. So she'll look at her limbs and go, that's not my hand, which is an interesting, that's not not something that I would have thought about. I just thought, it's my hand. Um, but when, when that's disrupted, when our senses are disrupted, we learn a little bit more about them. Um, and actually, sadly, we, we had this conversation, I think, on Thursday. And then Friday, she got a migraine and couldn't see properly. And her hands weren't, didn't feel like hers. And um, So our, our senses uh, really are, uh, when we don't, uh, when they're not working properly, they can show us something about how they're supposed to work. So think of another sense. I was thinking of other senses, and this, is, this was one that I thought of where it doesn't seem to be working properly the way it's supposed to work uh, in our culture. And that is our sense of the spiritual world. Our culture has lost touch with the reality of the spiritual that's going on and happening all around us all the time. Different cultures cultivate that sense. And... Um, have a different experience of the spiritual world, the, kind of the heavenly realities that are happening all around us all the time. Our culture doesn't cultivate that. One author I read this week compared our understanding of the sense of the spiritual to our appendix. Maybe it served some purpose for someone a long time ago, but we don't really need it now. That's kind of the way our culture treats the sense of the spiritual overall. Why is that? Is it because of science or technology or maybe some theorists like Marx or Darwin or Freud? Maybe they kind of rooted the, the sense of the spiritual out of us. But if, if that's the case, then I would ask people in the church, do you have a sense of the spiritual happening around you all the time? Do you experience the reality? The heavenly reality is around us now, is here in the room. Charles Taylor, uh, an author and sociologist, wrote A Secular Age. 
And it's kind of a landmark book talking about our history and how this culture became a secular one. Long before there were smartphones or television or the theory of evolution or long before communism, Christians gave up seeing the world as enchanted. Enchanted is his term. Seeing the world as spiritual, that there were spiritual realities all around us. We gave up thinking of the world as having fairies in it or demons or gods around every bush and tree. Now, there's obviously our theology could have improved. But instead of seeing the world as enchanted and improving that, we set up the world as having an imminent frame is his term. Imminent frame just means it feels like the world is flat and there's a box on top or a lid on top and the lid is closing in on us. And reality, kind of heavenly realities, don't enter the box. Christians did that. We set that up. So we could blame the culture, and lots of Christians seem to think that fighting culture wars is the way to make heaven feel more real. But I would suggest that the church has the resources. We have the Spirit of God to develop our spiritual sense. And we're the ones, because we have the resources... The church is the ones who are responsible for shaping and changing that. Our natural senses just can't take all of reality in. We don't have that in us. We need the supernatural senses given to us by God. So today's passage invites us to develop our supernatural senses to see what's there right in front of our noses. Let's pray and then jump into this text. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are here with us. I pray that today you would reveal something more to us about how you're acting and what you're up to and invite us into the bigger reality that's happening all around us all the time. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would develop in us our spiritual senses, that we might be attuned to the work that you're doing in the world always. Invite us into your bigger kingdom work. And help us to see and participate with you because of the blood of Jesus and because he is king. So Father, Son, and Spirit, we love you and we praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some quick context uh, about where we are. Again, we're in 2 Kings. And as Dad said last week, Kings is written from exile after the people of Israel had been driven out of their land because of their sin and idolatry. And it's partly written to tell the story of how Israel ended up in exile. But it's also partly written to say, hey, there's a possibility that God can restore this people. He can restore us. And so last week, Dad Dad talked about the reality that God is way bigger than we think. And his purposes are all about all of creation and restoring Israel, so that he can restore everyone. This week, the passage is dealing with the central questions of the book of Kings. How do we get here into exile, and what can be done about it? For the people reading, it would be, how can we be free of our Babylonian oppressors? That would be the question they'd be asking as they read this. And as we look at this text, there's a couple of seemingly disconnected stories. 
So it, it was a little bit of work to try and put these together into one sermon. So I'm just saying that up front. We're not even sure about the timing of these stories. Do they occur back to back? It's not clear. And which kings of Aram and Israel are we talking about? That's not clear. But they're connected by the miraculous power of God to do amazing work, to show reality beyond us, to bring about liberty and salvation to his creation, and to pour out his grace on his creation, on people who don't deserve it. So that's what we'll focus on, God's power on display for the good of his creation. I'm going to start verses 1 to 7. God raises dead hopes. So 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let's go to the Jordan, where each of us can get a pole, and let's build a place for us to meet there. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, won't you please come with your servants? And Elisha said, sure. And he went out with them. They went out to the Jordan, began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head that he was using fell into the water. Oh no, my Lord, he cried. It was a borrowed axe head. Man of God, Elisha asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick, threw it there, and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. So the sons of the prophets, this community of prophets around Elisha, needs a new place, so they decide to build by the Jordan. Great. A couple quick notes here. Elisha is apparently attracting and developing new prophets. He's a discipler. He's discipling new people to follow after him. And his prophetic work is so powerful that people are attracted to what he's doing. That group decides to go build by the Jordan, which fits with a lot of the work that Elisha does. Both his work and Elijah's work often are pointing back to the Exodus. So hanging out by the Jordan would remind people, oh yeah, this is where God brought us into the land of Israel. God saves people from slavery and gives them new land at the Jordan. That's the kind of thing that God does at the Jordan. So, but while they're working on this building project, one of the community loses this borrowed axe head. And the guy who borrowed it cries out, oh no, I borrowed that. Now, let me explain why that's important. The growth group guide from this week says, the distress expressed isn't over the harm to the building project, but that the lost tool is borrowed. In early Iron Age Israel, iron was both still rare and expensive. The borrower might be unable to pay for replacement. That'd be very distressing, (laughs) If you borrowed something that you can't pay back. And we think of like an axe head as, you know, it's, it's a hand tool. It's not that big a deal. But at the time, this was the height of technology. This is the Iron Age. So an iron axe head, this is as expensive and uh, technologically advanced as it gets. That would be like me borrowing a friend's Tesla and then driving it into the bottom of Lucky Peak. Right? That would be a problem. I'm not going to be able to pay that back really under any circumstances. And the way that you would pay back someone in this time period is you would become their slave. That's how it worked. If you can't pay it back, you're now a slave to that person. So it's possible, I mean, he's feeling bad that he lost his friend's axe head, but it's also he's feeling scared that he's about to go into slavery 
Elisha doesn't seem that concerned. He's like, hey, where did you lose it? Let me cut a piece of wood. I'm just going to throw it in there. And it floats. Now, I don't, again, I'm not that scientific, but my understanding of iron is its properties are that in water it sinks. It doesn't float. This is clearly miraculous, right? And happening at the Jordan, around this concept of slavery, right? This guy's about to become a slave if Elisha doesn't do something. And the Jordan is the place where the ex-slave people of Israel come in to find a new homeland. This is kind of a big moment. This is how the Lord works. He works miracles to protect his people from slavery. This, this should remind us of lots of other examples of the Lord doing miraculous things to protect, save his people from things like slavery and death, right? Like Jonah was thrown into the sea and God protected him by having him swallowed by a fish. Like the Exodus story, as we've already talked about, for a people living in exile, think about what this would have meant to them. They would have gone, hey, our God is the God who can take stuff that's broken and damaged. We're in exile and we deserve to be there. But our God raises people out of exile and brings them back into the land. This should have been an encouragement to them. And for those of us who know and follow Jesus, this might picture for us, God raises iron axe heads. God also raises dead bodies, doesn't he? A dead body is exactly the kind of thing that doesn't live. Just like an iron axe head is exactly the kind of thing that doesn't float. Only God can do that. And with God, all things are possible. John Chrysostom, uh, early church um, preacher, one of the great preachers of the early church, said, By means of the prophet, with a small piece of wood, he raised up iron from the bottom. In like manner, also with the cross, he has drawn the world to himself For as the water bears up the world, so also the cross bears up the world. So for me, the the kind of point of this passage is that iron tools and dead bodies, God raises stuff that has no business being raised. That's who our God is. Okay, let's keep looking. At, at what's next. Verses 8 to 20 is what we'll look at next. And this, for me, is just a fascinating story. It's the kind of story that I, I've meditated on a lot. And I'm going to tell you, I didn't understand this story. So I've meditated, I've used this story in counseling a lot, that reality is bigger than we think it is, right? And, and yet, when I look at this story, it, it surprised me this time. I've used it a lot, but like all scripture, it just ends up surprising you. Um, but first, a, a quick um, look at our family. So our second daughter, Adelia, has in her closet, she has a whole shelf filled with cardboard boxes. Anytime we get a cardboard box, she's like, hey, can I have that? I'm like, you don't have any room left to put any more cardboard boxes. But she'll take big cardboard boxes, break them down, put them in, in, the, in her closet. She loves cardboard boxes. She likes the box as much as she likes whatever, you know, 
comes in the box. And sometimes, you know, the kids will get a big cardboard box, they'll hide in it, and then they'll try and scare us, you know, pop out when, when we're not ready. They'll be hiding in the box and then jump out. And, okay, fun. Love it. This story, to me, feels like everyone is living in a cardboard box in that imminent frame that I talked about at the beginning. Everybody's living in a cardboard box. And Elisha is like, hey, pop out. Like, the world is great. Like, look at the sky and feel the wind on your face. and Look at the grass. It's amazing. Sunshine. And everybody's like, no, we're good in the box, Elisha. It's like, no, no, really. It's great up here. No, we like the box. That's kind of this story. The, the reality of this story is that reality itself is bigger than our natural senses. Um, in our staff meeting this week, Alan said, what might we see if God opened our eyes? That's, that's this story. What might we see? Well, we don't know. It would be way beyond uh, e- even our imaginations. But what would happen if God opened our eyes and let us out of the box and showed us all that's happening around us? Even in this room, it'd be amazing to see what God is doing in this room right now. God is constantly, like all the time, showing us reality as it really is. And it has more colors and more music and more depth than we imagine. But are we ready to perceive it? Are we even open to perceiving it? Or are we enjoying the box? That's the question for us. So um, let me read verses 8, 8 to 14 just to get us into the story. So the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I'm going to set up my camp in such and such a place. And the man of God sends word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. And time and again, Elisha warns the king so that he's on his guard in such places. And this enrages the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me, who is the spy? Who is a, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. King orders, go, find out where he is so I can send men and capture him. The report comes back. He's in Dothan. Then he sends horses and chariots and a strong force there and they go by night and they surround the city. All right, so the king of Aram, he's at war. And Elisha has this supernatural vision every time the king wants to send uh, a raiding party against Israel. So, so the king is really ticked off at this point. This is not cool. He's really annoyed. Who's sending word? Who's the spy? The servants tell him it's Elisha, and he's down at Dothan. So like a fool, I mean, think about it. Like a fool, the king sent, tells his officers, send, I'm not sure what's happening there. Send a force against Elisha at Dothan. Now think about this. Elisha is hearing whatever the king's saying in his room, and he's been disrupting all of the raiding parties. So he's got this supernatural power, and the king is like in his box, like, hey, that supernatural guy can see what's happening. I'm going to use the tools and resources that I use in the box to catch that supernatural guy. Like, Elisha's dancing outside the box. He's not, how is this guy, 
from inside the box going to catch Elisha? There's no, like, this doesn't make any sense. But he's, again, he's still living in the imminent frame, in his cardboard box. Um, one of the commentators, I, with he's a Scottish commentator, and with a uh, typical Scottish understatement, makes the comment, the king of Aram cannot see what Elisha can see. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he cannot see what Elisha can see. So he's using, st- like, he, he just doesn't have the resource. Again, the king is huddled down in the dark. Elisha's out in the light, and the king thinks, oh, my resources of darkness are going to catch that guy in the light. It's just not going to work. It does freak out Elisha's servant, though, as Jerry already read for us. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army of horses and chariots surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what are we going to do? Servant asks. Don't be afraid, prophet answers. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he can see. The Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Whoa. What are we going to do? Don't worry, man. We have a much bigger army than they have. And then he prays, which, as it always does, it changes reality. When we pray, I mean, in one sense it doesn't, right? Because reality is already what it is. But when we pray, it opens us up to the reality as it really is. And and so when we pray, when, when Elisha prays for a servant, all of a sudden you can see, oh yeah, we're fine. Like there's a heavenly army surrounding the army of Aram, full of horses and chariots of fire. Yeah, I think we're going to be okay. Prayer changes things, right? So when he prays, God reveals reality as it really is. And, and I don't know, right, what, what kind of senses... God used to reveal this to the servant? Like, did he use his natural eyes to see? I don't know. Did, some, some spiritual sense was awakened in him and he was allowed to see what really was there. And I, I, I just want to say that our spiritual senses, um, sometimes our spiritual awareness happens through the natural senses that we're used to using. And I don't know how that works. And sometimes it's a whole new reality that's beyond our, way beyond our natural senses. God can use whatever he wants to use to make us aware of him. And he uses all kinds of stuff. We're going to, uh, later in the service, he uses bread and a cup, bread and juice or bread and wine, to make us aware of him, to enliven our spiritual senses, to open them up to him. So, I don't know how, but that's his work. But when, when you pull back the curtain so that we can see these heavenly realities, like, for the servant, it was still true that they were surrounded by an army of Aram, right? But when you pull back the curtain, all that stuff 
that we perceive through our natural senses gets put into its proper context. Oh, yes, we're still surrounded by an army, and that's not great. But the army with us is way bigger than the army against us. And that's pretty cool. Next section, verses 18 to 20. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike this army with blindness. So the Lord struck him with blindness, as Elisha asked. And Elisha says, This isn't the road you're looking for. This isn't the city. Follow me. I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. Samaria is the capital, right, of the northern kingdom of Israel. It's where the Israelite army is hanging out. So they entered the city. Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. They'd been taken captive without their knowledge. Crazy story. So Elisha reverses the prayer he had prayed for his servant. For a servant, he prayed, let him see. For this army, he prays, let them be blinded. We're not sure what that looks like or how that functioned. Um, But they're like little children that have to be led around. And so Elisha just leads them several mile journey to Samaria. He takes them into a trap, essentially. Um, and, and And he basically hands them to the king of Israel as POWs. So we're going to get to the end of this story in just a minute, but um, I just want to point out there are some practical ways. Ultimately, developing our spiritual senses is the work of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, it's not our work, right? But there are some practical ways that we can allow ourselves, allow our senses to be developed, right? It's like, uh, it's like uh, playing baseball. If you don't practice your swing, it doesn't matter if like you get a, a underhand pitch, like perfectly teed up, doesn't, doesn't matter if you don't know how to swing a bat. So God has given us some ways to practice our spiritual senses. So I just want to give us a couple of examples. And first is that the reality is that God is all around us constantly working. So do we look for him to be working? Do you ever sit with God and just ask him, hey, what are you doing? Can you show me what you're up to? And then do you sit and listen to what he tells you or brings to mind? If that's not a practice that you're currently doing, then I suggest that you sit with a trusted friend or a spiritual mentor and pray, hey God, what are you up to? Holy Spirit, show me what you're doing in my life and the lives of those around me. What did you do today? Can you show me something that you did in my life today? Where were you in my choices? When I was anxious today, where were you? What about in my traumatic moments? What what were you doing? In my joys. And then just sit and be quiet before him. And see what he tells you. Um, one of my favorite books of the last couple of years was called Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. I highly recommend it to you. 
and it just walks through the day. Here's what the Lord might be doing in this part of your day. And here's a way that you can sit before the Lord and listen to him in this part of your day. Just walks through from waking up to going to bed at night. Here's ways that you can spend time developing our spiritual senses uh, before the Lord. Again, Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. Okay, so that's first. Just ask him, what are you doing? Second, when we read Scripture, do we read it to confirm our thoughts about our world inside the cardboard box? Do we read that way? Or do we read to enter into God's bigger world, to get out of the cardboard box? Do we read a passage like this one for moral lessons that we can take for living in the dark? Or do we read it because God is much bigger than we imagined and he's inviting us into something much grander than we picture for ourselves? If you tend to read for moral lessons, then I invite you to try reading scripture with different eyes. Try reading a passage, then ask God to show you something about himself. Or ask, what bigger world are you inviting me into? And then just read it again and sit and listen and see what God tells you, what he communicates to you. Scripture, it has moral lessons for us, so I don't want to say don't take away moral lessons. But that's not the reason that God speaks to us. He doesn't speak to us to make us more righteous people. He speaks to us to invite us into his grand kingdom. He's doing something remarkable in the world and he wants you and I to participate in that. So first, ask him uh, what he's up to. Second, read scripture with those eyes and participate in his invitation. And then third, do we invite God and his perspective into our thinking and dreaming about ourselves and our decisions? I think about myself and sometimes I get into a cycle of like shame and negative self-talk, like all this stuff. Um that I'm not good enough or I haven't done enough, that kind of thing. When when I get there, it helps me if I go, Lord, is this your word for me? Is this what you're saying to me? Where where does this language come from? Because I don't think it's from you. Or when we're making decisions and we're trapped in inside the box thinking, do we invite the Lord to help us, give us other ways of thinking. What, what might he be inviting us into? I even think sometimes when I, I'm trapped in a particular sin or I catch myself, oh, this is sinful, this thing that I'm doing right here. I even think it's helpful to invite the Lord in right then. Go, Lord, I'm ashamed of what I'm doing, but... You've already, Jesus, you've borne my shame. You've defeated sin. So help me understand myself in this moment. Like, why am I doing this? And also help me, change me, make me new. 
Because shame makes us smaller and foolish, and God is making us bigger and wiser. God is not afraid of our choices or even our sin. It's a crazy thing. Like, he's already dealt with all that, so he's not afraid of it. He wants to make us new, and he wants to show us a much bigger and more whole reality than we've already experienced. Okay. So our natural senses just don't tell us everything there is to know about the universe. There's a lot more there. There are whole realms that we can only access by our spiritual senses. But the most important being in the universe is constantly communicating with us if only we would pay attention and listen. So I invite you to pay attention and listen. Okay, end of this passage here. When the king of Israel saw them, saw that he'd been given this opportunity to destroy the Aramean army, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Should I kill them? Elisha answered, don't, don't kill them. Would you kill those you captured with your sword or bow? Give them food and water so they may eat and drink and go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Now I said earlier that I love this story, but I had totally forgotten the ending. (laughs) Kind of the point of the story. I mean, it's amazing just to think about, okay, there's reality beyond what we can see. But then what God does at the end brings the whole thing home, doesn't it? The way of the Lord is grace and peace. And we see Elisha and the king of Israel live that out here. This is just characteristic of God's activity in the world. This is how God works. He works through grace and peace. And if we're reading this passage, as I suggested earlier, as a way of reading so we can see the big world that God is inviting us into, then we can see that this great feast looks a lot like other great feasts throughout Scripture, doesn't it? Where the Lord is inviting sinners to eat together with Him, made possible by Him. So I think of like Psalm 23. There are various ways to read uh, parts of Psalm 23. But the Lord prepares a table, and here it's in the presence of my enemies. I get to eat with my enemies. Or I think of Psalm, uh, sorry, not Psalm, but Isaiah 55, where the thirsty, the poor, all nations, and even creation itself are coming together to eat and worship the Lord. Or you think of Jesus' ministry. Jesus ate with sinners, with drunks, prostitutes, tax collectors. Or the Lord's Supper, communion, which we're going to celebrate in a few minutes where we're all sinners, all together, and yet we're invited to eat with him. And all of those are pictures of the the great wedding feast of the Lamb that we all will get to celebrate together, where the Lord Jesus is united to his bride, the New Jerusalem, and people from every tribe and tongue, people and nation are feasting together and made one. This is all possible, of course, Because while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus gave up his place at the Father's right hand to come and side with the powerless, with sinners, with the enemies of God, and came to die for us. 
In the same way, the king of Israel here gives up his right and his desire to kill his enemies. Gives up his power over others. And instead, he treats them as guests and friends. He eats with them, sends them away. When we participate in the table together, we remember our faithlessness and sinfulness. But that Jesus' blood has overcome sin and set us free to follow after him. We're all equal before Jesus. We're all the same in our need before Jesus. But Jesus invites all of us. So everyone's welcome at the table. And at the Lord's table at communion, we participate in the ongoing feast that includes followers of Jesus from every tribe, tongue, nation, people, and from all times and places. People all over the world today and people all throughout history have celebrated this meal. Same kind of meal that we see the king of Israel make available to this Aramean army. Jesus invites everyone. The ones who tend to say no are those who think they don't need what Jesus offers. But everybody's welcome. At the Lord's table, at communion, we're participating in this ongoing feast. And when we participate in communion together, if we could see the heavenly reality happening around us, we would see God's Holy Spirit present to us and to all of God's people around the world and throughout history. We'd all be feasting together if we could see what's happening in the heavens when we eat together. And that's, again, through stuff like bread and juice, bread and wine. It's natural stuff. But those natural things help us participate in heavenly realities. Amazing. Peter Lightheart, um, one of the commentators on this passage, says, this is just who we are. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's what Christians commit themselves to at the Lord's table. Because that's what's taking place at this table. While we were sinners, Christ, the bread of life, gave himself for us. God calls his enemies and spreads a great feast before us. And to the church, he says, go and do likewise. So, we're going to enter a time of communion together. So I hope you have your elements uh, with you. And I believe there's gluten-free available at the back. Um, But just a reminder, the table reminds us that reality is filled with more than only what our senses, natural senses, tell us. Reality is really, really big. And living in line with God's reality allows for all kinds of creative solutions and grace and changes the nature of things. So, welcome to the Lord's table. Even the enemies of the Lord are welcome here. So if you've been living as an enemy of the Lord, he invites you to himself and to his table. If you've been living in the cardboard box and you can see that there's light outside and you want that light and life, then I invite you to move forward in the freedom of the Lord. He wants to set you free.
So this is a table filled with natural enemies, people of different nations, different races, different languages, social statuses, political ideas from all times and places. We ought to be enemies naturally, but we're made one by the blood of Jesus, the same blood that washes all of us clean. So let's be those welcoming people, people who welcome God's children with grace and send them away in peace. That's certainly how the Lord treats us. Um, I want to do something that we don't always do, but I want to read uh, a prayer of confession, maybe do this all together. So um, I put a prayer of confession. I hope you can read that okay. Um, so let's just confess our sin before the Lord together. Uh, join me. Lord, we confess our sin to you. We made ourselves your enemies, attacking your people and choosing darkness and blindness over light. We've reacted out of fear and self-interest rather than living in the fullness of your grace and the light of your creation. We have not chosen to welcome strangers and enemies as you do at your table. Forgive us and open our eyes to all that is happening in the world around us and especially to your presence and love and grace, which are so near to us. Uh, let's see. Yeah, that was the end. So here are the words of forgiveness from Psalm 103, verses 8 to 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amen. Again, the elements are at the back. Um, oh, sorry, gluten-free is at the back. The elements are here. Um, it's not as great a visual, so I'm going to use this for our visual and then eat out of this. Um, but the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.